0: It's kind of exciting. I'm actually waiting for Lila, unless you're here and not in hiding. So good evening. First, I want to offer a little bit of congratulations for making it through the first day. How many of you uh, felt like it was a an accomplishment? It was beautiful. <laughs> we have really deep appreciation for what you've been doing today because it's um, it goes so much against the momentum of our lives and the stream of our lives to just stop. It's, a, it's huge and it's very actually really rare. So that Even the Buddha talked about just the smattering of people who even are open to hearing teachings and then a smattering that would even dip their toe into the idea of practice and then even fewer who would actually do it in any sustained way and then even fewer yet who would actually come on retreat. So you're in rarefied territory. Uh, And was it a bit of a bumpy landing for you today? Anybody willing to say, well, just consider what you came from, where you came from. Uh, This practice has often been described as uh, against the stream. And Of course, the direction of practice is enter the stream of harmony with life, but but against the stream really is against the stream of our conditioning. Usually, at the beginning of retreats, I share a, a editorial from a woman named Amy Krauss Rosenthal that just highlights one of our, some of our deep conditioning and that which we have to deal with when we stop and keep quiet and look within. This is how she put it, if I can find it. She entitled this Sweet Nothing. How have you been? Busy. (laughs) How's work? Busy. How was your week? Good. Busy you name the question, busy's the answer. Yes, yes, I know we're all terribly busy doing terribly important things, but I think more often than not busy is simply the most acceptable knee-jerk response. Certainly there are more interesting, more original, more accurate ways to answer the question, how are you? I'm hungry for a burrito. I'm envious of my best friend. I'm frustrated by everything that's broken in my home. I'm itchy yet, busy stands alone. As the easiest way of summarizing all that you do and all that you are, I'm busy is the short way of saying, implying, my time is filled, my phone does not stop ringing, and you, therefore, should think well of me. A lot of pride around busyness. Have people always been this busy? Did cavemen think they were busy too? (laughs) This week is crazy. I've got about 10 caves to draw on. Can I meet you by the fire next week? I have a hunch that there is a direct correlation between the advent of coffee bars and the increase in busyness. Look at us. We're pros now at hailing cabs, making copies, carpooling, performing surgery with a to-go cup in hand. We're skittering about like hyperactive gerbils, high not just on caffeine, but on caffeine's luscious byproduct, productivity. Ah, the joy of doing, accomplishing, crossing off. As kids, our stock answer to almost every question, what did you do at school today? What's new was nothing. (laughs) I know this. I have a a close to nine year old daughter. In our country's history, there have been exactly seven kids who responded with a statement other than nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Then somewhere on the way to adulthood, we each took a 180 degree turn. We cashed in our nothing for busy. I'm starting to think that like youth, the word nothing is wasted on the young. Maybe we should try reintroducing it into our grown up vernacular. Nothing. I say it a few times, I can feel myself becoming more quiet, decaffeinated, zenish. Uh, nothing. Now I'm picturing emptiness, a white blanket, a couple of ducks gliding on a still pond. Nothing, nothing, nothing. How did we get so far away from it? So you, I say this because I think you already intuit that there's some value to nothing and it's not as though we're not doing anything. You worked hard today. It's, it's hard to stay with the process when everything in our psyche wants to, to, well let me put it this way, how many of you planned your escape? <laughs> it's completely natural, completely natural. We have been from, you could say, time immemorial, and tonight I want to talk a little bit about the the Buddha's way to happiness, and how it's so relevant, and how it's so like your own search for happiness. But we have, from time immemorial, uh, just completely gotten habituated to planning our escape to going out of ourselves in search, uh, living in a total externalization of, of of the search for happiness. People, things, situations, everything dependent on satisfying some kind of thirst. And the last, the absolute last place, so innocently but true, the last place we look is the very nature of our own minds. And that's what we have, you've already committed to doing in a way here. So there's obviously an intuition you had that, that whatever that happiness is that the Buddha spoke about is an inside job. It's to be found right uh, as the, the very person that you are here and now before you can give rise to the, the idea of the person you think you are. as I like to say, after the last thought of yourself as having problems and before the next one. There's a, there is a um, there is a eunus here that is so easily missed, that's really quite full and wonderful. And that's what we reclaim in our practice. Thich Han put it very sweetly. He said, you who are the richest person on Earth, who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child, come home, reclaim your heritage. So you may have, as you went through this day today, all the bumps and the aches and the pains in your mind wanting anywhere but here, you may have had the thought, what does this have to do with happiness? <laughs> any of you ever have did any of you think about that? What does this have to do with happiness? And the Buddha actually struggled with the same issue, not so much by the time he started his practice. Well, actually, it was an ongoing question. It was a living question for him, just as it's a living question for you. It wasn't about for him just adopting a new set of views. It was about really looking carefully at what is, what is it? Where can we find, we used the words refuge last night, we took the refuge, where can I find a reliable refuge? Because that's a lot of our churning is looking for relief. Isn't that what a lot of what was driving you today? Looking for some pleasure. Trying to get away from what was what was not so pleasurable. This is uh this is the common pursuit of our mind. And we all want to be happy. The Dalai Lama says what connects all of us, what is universally true, is we all want to be happy. We all want to be free of suffering. It's what really makes us one. And you can see it in even the little beings. I was thinking about uh, my time, some of the uh, the early years where I used to do a lot of intensive uh, practice uh, with this Burmese teacher, Upandita, and Lila and I shared several retreats. And One of them was in the in the mountains of Arizona place called Prescott, Arizona, maybe some of you know Prescott and up in the mountains we we rented a Girl Scout camp for the Upandita retreat and I found this beside the a wonderful place that I found to do walking meditation on this tennis court and we used to have a tennis court here that a lot of people did walking on but I found this other place which was under a tree in the middle of the forest And I shared this space with a little squirrel. And this little squirrel was scared. And I really, we bonded in our fear. And it just was such a revelation to the the fear that runs, that strain of fear that runs through all of us, that insecurity, that vulnerability, that, uh, that urge to be safe and to want to find relief. And you probably felt some of that today. You may have judged it. But it's really so human and so innocent. But it also is a result of, of conditioning. And the conditioning of thinking that what's next will bring relief, that going out of myself will bring relief. So the Buddha had the same question, but he started to get wise. He started to get wise by realizing that all his strategies, all his, and he was very privileged relative to. His day and like, like really most of us, uh, given that we live in uh, this country, this time where satisfying sense pleasures is just you know just endless. Different ways of distracting yourself, endless. It was no different at the time of the Buddha. Different kinds of distractions, but he had the all the sensuality he wanted, and he had all the music he wanted. Had all the the wonderful food and and everything anyone would want but he began to feel dissatisfied began to feel that sense of angst that sense of uh, something the, the wheel is squeaking something's not quite right and i think most of us carry around that feeling this is if you carry around that feeling and you acknowledge that feeling this is what the buddha called dukkha a feeling of unsatisfactoriness, unreliability. It's just a mark of our life. Any of you relate to that at all? Yeah. Ultimately, this isn't the problem. It's the way that we relate to it. It's the way we work with it. And I'll get more, I'll talk about that more as we go along. But he began to see the unreliability of the world of... Of um the pleasures of the senses, and I know that you've all seen the unreliability of it, and why I wanted to um, I wanted to actually begin this talk with a a prologue, but I forgot it at the beginning, but I'll share it with you now, and this is basically the theme of the talk, in the words of Hafiz, the Sufi poet, a little stanza from one of his poems called. Uh, cast all your votes for dancing. He says, learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days on end like a broken man behind a farting camel. This is the problem. We don't, up to this point in our life, we do to a certain degree, you have an intuition here, but even meditators don't realize the extent to which we have put our faith in uh, the search for pleasure, in the search for, for the next best thing and the association with happiness being about having as many successive pleasures as you can and avoiding displeasure. And that seems like a very superficially, it seems like a perfectly reasonable recipe for happiness. Boy, if I can have a lot more pleasure and not too much displeasure, what a wonderful thing. But unfortunately, this strategy, this methodology, same as the time during the Buddha's life, it hasn't made anybody happy. It never made anybody happy, truly happy. It never provided anyone and it's never provided you a reliable place to rest. Because what happens to the pleasurable moments that we have? What happens to them? Fleeting. fleeting. And it's not just that they're fleeting. Everything's fleeting but what it's what they also leave in their wake. They leave in their wake a feeling of Ugh, dissatisfaction. And it, they also leave something else in their wake because we don't want to stay with that feeling of loss for very long, do we? What usually quickly follows desire. is the desire for the next one. And very innocently we enter, we have entered from beginningless time on an endless wheel of searching, an endless wheel of looking of looking for a sense of well-being, a sense of happiness, a sense of relief, through the process of satisfying a hunger for something, a thirst for something, an acquisition of something, a connection with something. all out of love for ourselves. All out of a desire, an innocent longing for relief, we have looked for, as the expression goes, we have looked for love in all the wrong places. And it's left us needing more to be happy. As Sogyal Rinpoche puts it, and this is all part of our our cultural conditioning, but this is nothing new these days, but he talks about it in modern in modern context, sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara. Samsara is this endless cycle of of becoming, an endless cycle of of getting, having, losing, being born into an endless uh, series of of desires over and over, wears us out. That's a lot of why we're so worn out when we come here. Do you agree? He says, sometimes I think the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life it actually starves it of any real meaning that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and a depression that it fosters and trains us all in, and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, sophisticated. It assaults us from almost every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps. It is so ingenious at setting for us. As one Lama put it, the Lama is a teacher, mesmerized by the sheer variety of perceptions, beings wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle. Obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions which promise happiness but lead only to misery. We're like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us even thirstier. Have you noticed this? As Bo Lozoff put it, it's time that that we open our eyes and stop uh, trying to keep up with the Joneses. He says, it's time that we understand that the Joneses are not happy. (laughs) And he goes through a litany of all their problems. And and it's us. The Joneses are not happy. So you could have everything. And as long as your sense of well-being or sense of happiness depends on satisfying uh, sense desires, that doesn't mean you throw away the world of sense desires, the sensual world. Our senses are sensual. I immensely. I don't know about you, but I did a little walking practice, and I hope for you. And I know you did a lot of walking practice today, but walking on the porch here, just before tea time, it was stunning out there. It was beautiful, and I. It, course I had all kinds of associations. It was the simplicity of walking but I had the memories of practicing here and but the weather is beautiful and and all my senses were being fed and that's a glorious thing. It's a it's an amazing thing to have sense to have senses and to be able to enjoy the pleasures of the senses and I don't think the Buddha his issue was not with with pleasure per se with the senses. We live in a sensual world, but it was in the, what he called the misplaced faith that we put in the senses, in sensual pleasure, as our primary source of well-being and happiness. It is a source of, of well-being and happiness, but it, has, it comes with, with defects and dangers as, a, as, the, um, as the main event. So he very distinctly in his teachings talked about two kinds of happiness, two kinds of happiness. One he called worldly happiness or conventional happiness, which is the happiness that we, that we get through our senses. And it can be the happiness of sitting in this room, happiness of solitude, the happiness of connecting the happiness of whatever happens at the different uh, sense doors, the eyes, what things you see and hear and smell and taste and touch. And even the things you think about can be incredibly um, pleasurable, source of a kind of happiness. He called this lokiya worldly happiness. But if we fall into that misplaced faith, he described the same, he described worldly happiness as uh, the happiness of bondage, the happiness of slavery. because we get, we get so um, caught up in it and it depends on satisfying hunger. It depends on getting what we want. Depends on getting rid of what I don't want. So that kind of pleasure that comes through satisfying a desire, I'm happy when I have it, unhappy when I don't, not very reliable happiness, not a reliable place. Now think about it in your life. What is it that you tend to seek after for a sense of pleasure? And what is it, what's it like when you don't have it? And then what's it like when you do have it? In any case, regardless of the the form it, it takes, anything that is not here and available to you in every moment is not cannot be said to be a reliable kind of happiness, a reliable kind of of, um, relief. The Buddha also said that the highest happiness is peace. This dependency on having pleasure and the avoidance of pain, it's a little difficult, isn't it? Since isn't it true that in our lives, whether we like it or not, completely unbidden, don't uh, as they say don't the don't the worldly winds through bl- blow through our life what are the worldly winds praise we get happy blame unhappy fame shame pleasure pain gain loss these winds blow through everyone's life so if your well-being happiness is de- dependent on the pleasure of gain of pleasure of of fame of praise, you're, on, you're in quicksand. You are, you are setting yourself up. We've all set ourselves up innocently. And we've set ourselves up that way because of the lack of clarity, the lack of clear perception, what the Buddha called avija or ignorance. Not that you're an ignorant person. It's just that we don't see clearly what the, what the defects, what the dangers are in setting up our life around just having pleasure and avoiding pain. Again, it hasn't made anyone happy. The Buddha contrasted this so-called lokiya sukha, worldly happiness, that depends on getting what you want or not, or getting rid of what you don't want. He contrasted this with another kind of happiness, that. That points much toward, more toward the Buddha's way to happiness, the Buddha's kind of happiness, which he called lokutrasuka. Sukha is the word for comfort, happiness, well-being. Lokutrasuka means beyond the empower and influence of whatever's happening, a happiness that doesn't depend on what's happening, a happiness that's free of hunger free of thirst, free of needing anything to be different. The hunger, the the happiness that is untouched by these different winds that blow through our life. The happiness of freedom. So you sound interesting to you. (laughs) You may think, oh, because the urge, the encouragement is to aim for this. To, and I think just the fact that you're here, you're already entering into that different stream, that different gravitational field of freedom as opposed to the gravitational field of, of, of what's next. the Gravitational field of coming home, of finding contentment, peace in the midst of the joys and the sorrows. So how did the Buddha discover this, this different kind of happiness? Pretty much he discovered the different kind of happiness by, like you, experimenting with all the other kinds of happiness and seeing for himself. Not Again, not adopting views, not just taking on a new belief system, a new religion, and then getting becoming a true believer and getting uptight and then bothering everybody and himself by his views. It was through just seeing what's going on through clear perception, seeing how life is, things as they are. And what he saw, as I mentioned already, he saw that whatever worldly pleasures he had, they just weren't delivering. They were leaving, they were fleeting, they were, they were unreliable. they left in their wake more desire, more, a more of a feeling of, of dissatisfaction. And so he decided that, that he would uh, search for it somewhere else, not in, the, in just having what's sometimes called the perfect sensual day, you know where you wake up and you in the ideal in the ideal of the sensual world, you look into the eyes of your beloved, you make mad passionate love, then you roll out of bed into the hot tub or whatever you do in your world, (laughs) take a nice cold shower or a hot shower and then you gather all your cooking utensils, make your organic fruit salad, whatever it is, and then (laughs) look at your beloved again and then do have it go all over again. <laughs> again, it hasn't made anybody truly happy. Lots of pleasure though, no doubt about it. And I think we need a certain measure of pleasure and even the Buddha said he needed, you need some comfort and pleasure otherwise it's, life is too hard. So we don't want to abandon pleasure. You just can't. It's just... It's such so pleasurable just sitting here with you. How could you, how could you not just appreciate that? But I also, in my heart, I know you are all like, it's like a phantom, like a dream. You'll be here one day and then this will vanish. And so if I become dependent on the pleasure of sitting with you, not such a great recipe for happiness. So the Buddha realized there was something wrong with this picture. And then the real shock and awe, you could say, I hate to use that expression since it was used for such heinous reasons, but he started wandering around in search. Instead of just staying home and having all the pleasure, he started going out and out looking around the, the countryside in his, and where he lived. And he saw an extremely old person, an extremely old person. He saw an extremely um, unwell person, a sick person, and he saw a corpse. And then he saw a, somebody who looked kind of peaceful, a renunciate, monastic-like person. But what really sent him into shock was seeing, which is amazing to think that somebody 29 years old at the time of this, this way the story goes, at the time of the story, 29 years old, and he hadn't really noticed that as the, what is the Wiley's Dictionary? The definition of birth is the leading cause of death. Mm -hmm. That the definition of birth is the leading cause of sickness, and old age, if you get there, and, and dying. And he thought to himself, is this going to happen to me? And somehow he confronted the reality of the unreliability of the pride that we tend to have in, in our health, pride in our, um, our youth, and pride in our life. He saw that they, these were also. Changing conditions, unreliable. And it, it really shook him to his core. Uh, a kind of dismay and he, when he realized everything that I have been, everything I have been using as my source of, of security and identity, pleasure, all unreliable. This is going to happen to me. This is no. There's nothing. There's no. There's no reliable happiness to be found in in this uh, world that is not just marked by change, but it's all there is is change and impermanence. So what do I do now? So that's when his mind began to withdraw. He saw that person that demonstrated or looked like they were peaceful. They had a peaceful countenance. They looked like they were going against the stream that everyone else was, just going unconscious and and trying to have that perfect sensual day. Somebody who was demonstrating a passion for simplicity and contentment, presence. You can kind of sense somebody has a certain a certain kind of you can feel when somebody is really home in themselves just that there's a kind of quality of of immovability of unshakability so he was kind of attracted to that and so he started planning his escape but not escape from the retreat center but his escape from the from the so-called palace escape from his his opulent life, his privileged life. And like you, he started to practice meditation, found the best teachers he could find, best situation. And he put his, as we say, put his tush on the cush, And with tremendous passion, with this holy desire, Strong desire, but the desire that no other desire can fulfill. Most of our desires are things that lead one way. This was a desire to, to be free, to find something reliable. And, and at this point, nothing, nothing he could find. What had uh, seemed that he could see, that he could experience through his ordinary senses. Seemed to fulfill that bill because everything that enters our senses seems to come and go. But he started a practice. And the practice that he was taught had is very similar to the initial practice that we offer here, which is there are many, many different tools that you you can use, but it was the it was primarily tranquility practice. Putting your mind on on a particular object and staying there. And very quickly, his mind became suffused with a sense of, of peace and harmony. Mind and body came together. Maybe even today you felt a little sense of coming home, little moments where your mind relaxed a little bit. Anybody have that experience today? And quickly his because his you know the passion was so strong, his mind became quite uh, collected and at least the way it's written in some of the teachings, he experienced this feeling of what's called super-mundane happiness, beyond the mundane, beyond anything that we ordinarily experience in our ordinary uh, sense pleasures. And beyond the mundane, partly because that that pleasure that he was experiencing seemed to last quite a lot longer than our usual pleasures. it was often also described as unmixed happiness, which means it was, it was just that, just that sense of wonderful sense of well-being, comfort, sukha. And that unmixed happiness in some ways suggests that it was a, a well-being that's completely absent of any desire to be somewhere else. Any, any irritation, any aversion, any restlessness, any dullness, any doubt. Absent of all the, the, the um, afflictions of our mind. Sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? This is, a, this is the fruit of a mind that is co- collected and composed. We can experience, all of us, some measure of this kind of great sense of well-being. But then he realized something. He realized that... Um, this was just, I'll just put it in modern terms, this is just high class, worldly happiness. This is just, this is just um, a more rarefied form of unreliable happiness. And even though it, it, many times in his teaching he talked about the purifying effects of having your mind well collected. How it, de- how it, if you experience more and more moments of simplicity and harmony, it tends to slowly decondition, kind of li- uh, weaken your tendency toward or your tendency to be um, compelled or, or interested in things that uh, are excessively stimulating. It, it inclines your mind, your heart toward the, um, uh, wanting more peace, more simplicity. it it loosens that tendency to be um, so compulsive. But at the same time, he saw that as an end in itself, it was just another, another, although more slowly changing, but all the same, a changing condition like the weather. Those conditions would come together. It was conditioned, conditioned by circumstances, conditioned by your mind being concentrated. But not very reliable. So it was still in the realm of worldly happiness. So that didn't work, and so he decided to try um, starvation. <laughs> seems pretty di- pretty dramatic, doesn't it? Not exactly starvation, but renunci he. he he chose um, ascetic practices, more that kind of denial of the body, the assumption that maybe this is a way I could transcend this world of form is by, by um, denying myself pleasure, denying myself. But all that did was make him sick and tired and unable to meditate, unable to find any relief at all. In fact, it made his mind really weak and, and prone to doubt and confusion. So it reminds us that we need to be well-fed and healthy to to meditate as much as is possible given the limitations of our body. But he remembered a time when he was young and was very content under a cherry apple tree or something and uh, well-fed and his mind very serene. And he realized that you do need some degree of comfort. And this is when he began to figure out that this reliable happiness has something to do with a middle way beyond the extremes, beyond the extremes of asceticism or sensual indulgence. And just a perspective of an understanding of the limitations of both. So you can see, even if you if even if you reflect on the limitations of, of forcing yourself not to do things or indulging in things, you can see that if you see that. If you know intuitively, directly, this this doesn't do it, this doesn't do it, what's the effect of that? Well, in his case, his mind withdrew from searching in that way. And maybe yours has already, too. Because you're doing now, you're doing insight meditation. And it was through insight. It was through wisdom. It was through... uh, clear perception that he was able to discover that reliable kind of happiness. But he didn't didn't throw away the world of comfort and pleasure. He just used whatever measure was needed to make his mind and body somewhat uh, comfortable. And he didn't throw away the concentration. In fact, it's very central to our practice. But when he when his mind became a little bit more collected, when it became a little more steady, he didn't let the pleasure of it overtake his mind. He didn't, he didn't let that he didn't let himself get too seduced by the pleasure of it. Instead, he used the the power of mind, which is uh, Leela today spoke about face to face. That's mindfulness. It's, it's not just glancing at things, it's knowing what's happening now and having it in full view. And the other two parts that she didn't mention today about mindfulness is mindfulness has the quality of being face to face. It also has the quality of what's called non non superficial, which means you go right into what you're noticing. Sink into it. And then it also has the quality of uh, being able to be sustained. So, that not only do you notice what's happening, but not only do you feel it more intimately, sink into it, stick to it, but you also stay with it to see what happens. And that's, uh, that's where the insight begins to emerge. You feel that knee pain, feel that aching, you feel that mood that comes over you. Face to face, you feel it. We're used to thinking about things like that. We don't often feel them. But when you feel them, you feel them intimately. You're just right there with it. And you stay with it. You recognize that everything is in that state of movement, in that state of flux. Everything. And then there's, what does that start to do to your mind? You start to know, okay, this is how it is. To try to hold on so tightly to something that's changing doesn't make much sense it starts being foolish because you now have clear perception of how it is. Again, our our holding on, our confusion comes out of not seeing clearly, out of ignorance. So the Buddha sat down, determined, well fed, determined not to um, get up until he found a reliable kind of happiness and he paid attention the same way that you are here and used as his field of attention what was happening in his mind and body. Mindfulness of breathing and tomorrow will expand to include mindfulness of the the whole field of uh, physical sensations. But he also included mindfulness of the states of the heart and mind, mindfulness of thoughts and images, of course sounds, all the sense experiences. And as he paid attention, and as, hopefully as you pay attention, and you'll know this when you, as you leave here over the next few days, you may not, I present this now because you may not have the, so you may have to have, it may ignite bright faith but not verified faith. Verified faith is where you really know it because you experience it. Bright faith as you get, yeah, that seems like it's possible. But if you pay attention in that continuous way, as much as possible, the effect of paying attention, it is like like, uh, rubbing sticks together. It begins to ignite, brighten the mind. And the more the Buddha paid attention to even painful things, pleasurable and painful things, the more he paid attention, the brighter his mind got. And you'll find that the more you just keep connecting, the more you keep sustaining your attention in the most gentle way, just being here in the moments that you're here, knowing what you're knowing when you're knowing it, the more you do that, the more you're here, one way of talking about it is the more that you begin to connect with life. Not the idea of life, the reality of it, right where it touches you not the idea of yourself, but the direct experience of yourself. And it's like plugging into an inexhaustible resource, just being present. So as he did this, his mind got brighter and brighter until it was literally, as some of the descriptions go, it was shining in its clarity. And all that that did, of course, shining in clarity is not an end in itself, he saw that before. His mind was suffused with light when he was really concentrated. But, in, but as, he, as his mind shined as, and he was paying attention to what was going on, that, that, um, that light became very mirror-like. So everything he noticed, he could see really clearly. could really ca- catch how things are. And he saw that everything, everything that he noticed, mind, body, moods, everything, everything in a constant, constant state of flux. And he saw that there was such a difference between the whole dramatization that went on in his mind and the simplicity of what was happening in every moment. And he began to see that life in, its re- in reality is just seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting, feeling, thinking. The rest is a story. It's really these six things going on over and over again. And he began to see that none of that, none of that, cha- those changing experiences, none of that could um, could give him lasting relief. None of it could be said to be, oh, this is me. This mood is me. This thought, this is mine. The whole notion of me and mine began to break down. And there was just this this changing display of experience. Things coming and going. There's all kinds of sutras that Express this. One of them, I'll just loosely uh, describe what's called the all. In the seen, there's just what's seen. In the heard, just what's heard. In the smell, just what's smelled. In the tasted, just what's tasted. And the felt, just what's felt. And the cognized, just what's cognized. That's all. As Ajahn Chah said, "No me, no you, no self at all. Just what there is." And the more he saw this, the more his mind said, Not, none of this I can hold to. And the more his mind, the more he saw life in its, in its flow, entered that flow, his mind relaxed. And the same joys and the same sorrows were still coming, the same thoughts, the same doubts. and you know, It's even said that he was visited by doubts after his uh, visited by the voices of, of Mara. that voice in us that says, you know, who do you think you are? Just go eat some pizza. (laughs) I should have been Sufi dancing this week. I should have gone to the spa. Those kind of voices even came after. But those voices from a mind that was so mirror-like saw that, not a big deal. I see you. You're not going to get me off my cushion. And he began, no matter what was in his mind, began to have a sense of, of, of well-being that didn't depend on what was happening. And he knew this was a, this was a, a taste, the a first taste, of lokuturasukha, a taste of a well-being that didn't so much depend on, on what was entering any of the different senses he fell into a great joy so i've described so far tonight the different kinds of the different kinds of happiness that that he evolved through in his own practice that really are reflected in the in the teachings he talked about the happiness of the pleasures of the senses wonderful supportive but not very reliable changing and they And they're marked by, they they tend to leave in their wake more dissatisfaction. Followed by what's often called purity of mind, the happiness of a concentrated heart and mind. Beautiful, very helpful, very smoothing and quieting, content making, but not reliable. But this was the beginning of a different kind of happiness the happiness of insight sometimes called the joy of equanimity. I think is going to expand on this um, tomorrow. But as he was resting in that, that glimpse, that taste of, of Sukha, that unstuck from the world beyond the power and influence of what was going on, his mind relaxed. And in a flash of insight in a flash. Instead of his mind going out, looking, his mind enfolded on itself. And in a flash of insight, he realized, wow, I have been looking. I have been searching. I've been trying to secure myself. I've been trying to satisfy this. I've been trying to do this. I've been trying to... And all the while, I my deepest nature, not I who I imagine myself to be, but my deepest nature. My true nature, my natural state, I'm exactly what I've been looking for. That this reliable happiness is the very nature of my mind. And he fell into the what's called uh, Nirvana, Nibbana. I actually have a passage that describes a little bit this process. It's from one of the sutras called the Udana Sutra. For one who clings, motion exists. But for one who clings not, there's no motion. Where there's no motion, there is stillness. Where there's stillness, there's no craving. Where there's no craving, there's neither coming or going. Where there's neither coming or going, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where there's neither arising or passing away, there is neither this world, nor a world beyond, nor a state in between. This is the joy of Nirvana. So as Kala Rinpoche put it, Tibetan teacher, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, you are the Buddha. Why don't you know this? <laughs> because you think you're not. But if you can see, if you can just get one little taste, of just being exactly as you are, then you can always refer to that. And whatever that happiness is, is the very nature, your own nature. So Rumi, admonishes us in his poem called Inside This New Love. Inside this new love, die. Your way begins on the other side. Become the sky. Take an ax to the prison wall. Escape. Walk out like someone suddenly born into color. Do it now. You're covered with thick cloud, slide out the side, die. Quietness is the surest sign that you've died. Your old life was a frantic running from silence. The speechless full moon comes out now. So as our friend Joseph Goldstein reminds us, I think maybe he got this from the Buddha, I'm not sure, but the encouragement is that you aim for this highest happiness, aim for the happiness of nirvana, aim for freedom, and the way he puts it that all the other kinds of pleasure will come in the wake of that that you don't, as as uh, Suzuki Roshi says, renunciation isn't about giving up the things of this world, but in understanding deeply that they go away. So I'd like to tell you right now what happened after the, the Buddha sat there and realized that uh, realize that freedom, but our time has run out, (laughs) (laughs) and so I'd like to invite you just to uh, sit quietly, and don't look ahead, and don't look back, and don't look in between. This is the joy of nirvana. As you sit quietly, I'll close with a little question and answer with Eckhart Tolle. The questioner says, I cannot believe I could ever reach a point where I am completely free of my problems. (coughs) Eckhart Tolle responds, you're right. You can never reach that point because you are at that point now. There is no salvation in time. You cannot be free in the future. Presence is the key to freedom. So be free. May all beings realize true happiness. May all beings be free. thank you for your attention. We have a half hour for walking practice, being present. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.